0: Welcome everybody to the Seattle Sports Union broadcast. My name is Abraham Deweese here once again, and we are back with another special guest, a fantastic guest, a legend here in Seattle in journalism, and that is one Art Teal. Hosting today are Brian, the Soul Man Select, and Matthew, that damn dirty duck, Age. Take it away.
1: Hey, welcome. Welcome, Art. We appreciate you joining us.
2: Hey, I'm thrilled to be here. This is very cool. Thanks for uh, asking me. And as I mentioned, I'm here to bewilder and confuse. (laughs) I appreciate it.
3: Yeah. um, Enjoy being bewildered and confused. (laughs) We do
1: have several questions for you, but will you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, about your
2: background? Sure. Um, I'm pretty much a local. I was born in Montana, but I went to school in Tacoma. I graduated from Pacific Lutheran University and then I uh, got a job working at the News Tribune in Tacoma, taking prep sports on Friday night, which is sort of the classic entree into old school print journalism. And worked my way up, uh, working forty hours a week at my senior year in college. Moved to the Tribune on a temporary job, and then I uh, was part of the part of the ground floor operation. At a daily newspaper in Bellevue called the Journal American. and I'm sure uh, the only handfuls in the audience will remember the, the JA, but it was a great paper full of um, really top talent that's gone on. Tim Egan of the New York Times, um, Dave Horsey, the uh, political cartoonist, any number of other great uh, contributors were part of the Journal American. And uh, I stayed there for four years until the PI came calling that would be the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. I should make, make sure that people understand that there was a second newspaper in Seattle until 2008. And I worked at the PI uh, starting as the Mariner beat reporter. That was for a year. And then I moved to the Sonics. I was the beat reporter in the um, early 80s for the Sonics um, at the PI. And then I uh, moved to Husky football before getting a column. In the late '80s, so I was I've been, i been—I was at the PI until its uh, unfortunate murder by the Hearst Corporation, its owners, in 2008. And since then, I have begun an entrepreneurial effort called Sports Press Northwest, a digital-only website, news and commentary that I operated. Uh, I co-founded with my uh, longtime partner Steve Rudman, who retired a couple of years ago. And just last month, uh, I brought Sports Press Northwest to a close because it's time to move on to do other things, other kinds of writing. You know, it it was nothing that was bad or wrong about it. It's just that I've been doing daily journalism for a very long time and the break has been nice. Um, And it basically just comes down to um, in daily journalism, you're on scan 24-7 um you never especially as a columnist there's no real off season there's no break you've got to pay attention to whatever's going on and be able to deliver a topical and hopefully decently researched column in 24 hours or less and often it's 2 hours or less and I would
3: imagine that that situation has has just only increased. Like in today's Twitter age and 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 you know twenty four hour news cycles, I would imagine that speed has only
2: increased. Well, yeah, the the volume has increased, um, but there's a there's a weird aspect of an all digital operation, which is uh, from a standpoint of linear time, it's instant. And it's also infinite because um, in order to populate a site or you know, a, a Twitter or a Facebook account, you've gotta be quick. You have gotta put stuff up right away to be fresh, to be relevant, to be topical. But there is also the fact that without a print product to worry about, you have an infinite amount of resources and data at your disposal. And no particular time to post relative to a publication, so
3: no print deadline, no daily yeah. cutoff. Or he right, you no, can't you oh, can't no, hit no, three no. o'clock in the afternoon and go okay, I, I'm done for the day, and because I've hit the print deadline, I've turned in my article, and I can go hit the bar for a drink and relax for a couple hours.
2: Right. Or depending on the size of the story, it may be multiple. Episodes, So you can plan one for 6 a.m. Wednesday, another one for noon Thursday, and a subsequent one for 3 o'clock Friday, depending on what the metrics in your analytics tell you about when readers are paying attention. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a completely different mindset as far as audience connection and reach in digital than it was in print because the print uh, publication date dictated everything. So um, it's not all bad, I don't think. And in fact, uh, unlike a lot of my uh, veteran colleagues who lament the loss of the daily newspaper, you know, and and there are certain things about it that I certainly miss, but things are happening and resources are available in the digital world that were not there 10 years ago. And certainly not 20 years ago, excuse me. And so the upshot is... There's a lot of good journalism being done in different ways than before. But it's also a little more disposable now <clears throat> because it's really hard to keep track of all the platforms for the average news consumer. Because you've got now you've got access to the New York Times and the L.A. Times and the Seattle Times and Sports Press Northwest and various other platforms and it begins to be difficult for the news consumer sometimes unless you're just wedded to one or two sources and it becomes confusing especially when social media has not only no standards for news gathering but no um but no uh, accountability in terms of having Readers are uh, having users provide their identities. Mm-hmm. So anybody can say anything yeah. and it's up to the user to discern.
3: Well, it, it, it's, it's become, I mean, it, it's a situation that I think we've run into ourselves with, with Seattle sports union, where there's an oversaturation, like you're saying of, of just, you know, news there, there's, there's the guys who are, you know, got to get it, got to get out, got to get it out, got to get it out, Twitter, Every you know three seconds, something new breaks. We've got to have them beyond the cutting edge. But I think I think it opens the door a little bit for more thoughtful journalism, or investigative journalism. Like you said, there's a lot more information and tools available. Uh, so you, you so examples off the top of my head, like uh, I mean, I'm I'm a subscriber to the Athletic. They have they have right. a lot of, of of really well thought out, really good journalists who really put in and do some thoughtful. Deep researched, really well in- investigated articles that maybe didn't have the bandwidth available before. I mean, it's a different market, I guess, is what I'm saying.
2: Well, it's a, uh, it's. I, I, I've admired the Athletic because they, they have been the best at assembling the talent and the tools mm-hmm. to present a quality product, and it's also ad free. Mm-hmm. But the double and to that is. It's never turned to profit. If you Um, don't count the
3: sale that they just made, they got bought by the New York Times. Yeah, and
2: they've done a smart thing. They they bought it. They got the best partner available.
3: Yeah, and
2: good for them. Uh, But they still haven't turned to profit because they decided to go ad free and count all on subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's you know, I, I it's a noble effort. That's basically what I did. I I made my site voluntary subscriptions, and it got a lot of people to subscribe on a voluntary basis. Mm -hmm. I didn't make it mandatory because I've always felt like that is something that I I think people's subscriber money, uh, I should say user subscriber money should go to, I think, important projects and important news sites like the New York Times or other quality publications. And sports, I'm not saying it's not important, but I am saying It's fun and it's about games and the people that play them. And it's not a critical part of our lives and political system. So I'm a big fan of paying subscriptions to a lot of news sites and I do. Um, And so I just thought I'd keep this site voluntary and, you know, it's worked out decently, but it's, nobody's getting rich on digital journalism even the athletic, as good as it is. So anyway, that's a lot about the business of journalism. But um, it is, I think, important to all sports fans because the athletic, I hope, is going to be very successful in maintaining it because being ad-free is a big deal. And the reason I say that is because I find that ESPN, which is my sort of default national news site, it has been, is a complete sellout to those pro sports leagues. And it's, um, there's a lot of their stuff is quality. There's great writers there. And I'm, I'm not knocking the individual, but they're partners with the league. Yeah. So is Fox sports, they're partners. And, and the leagues are monopoly operators Mm -hmm. and ESPN isn't even a, you know, a monopoly per se, but they're the biggest SOB in the Valley. And, um, They dictate terms and conditions, and the best place to see that is college sports because college sports aren't organized in the way of pro sports, and the upshot is that the college scene is being dictated to by ESPN. That's, you know, Oklahoma and Texas didn't go to the Southeastern Conference first and say, hey, do you want us in your league? No, they went to ESPN and say, hey, what do you think? Yeah, ESPN said, yeah, you teams, you go over there. So uh, they're in, enormously uh, influential to the point of being manipulative. And, you know, my personal thing is I, I really resent ESPN's role in the sports community from the standpoint of being this all consuming colossus that dictates terms and conditions to the leagues and not the other way around.
3: You think, yeah. So you're, you think journalism should be objective, not tipping yeah, the scales like ESPN is obviously doing with the SEC and college. Right. I,
2: I, I, I think that there's a problem when broadcast entities partner yeah. with leagues. You know, it's an inevitable conflict of interest. Um, ESPN does a pretty good job of trying to play the solid journalism hand with like for example seth wickersham has done some great investigative reports bob lee on television Um, but they've also they've also kind of ghettoized some of those investigative things and they give preference to um guys who are less responsible and less uh independent of the leagues but there's a there's a, there's a coziness between leagues and, and ESPN that just annoys me as you can probably tell.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, your last article last month on sports press Northwest, you posted a picture of you interviewing Bill Walton. Uh, how, how, what was it
2: like interviewing Bill Walton back in the day? A wonderful picture, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I've been saving that picture for a long time. And I think where am I going to ever use this? And then I found a <laughs> spot. <laughs> um, the um, uh, Walton uh, at that time, I can't even remember where that picture was taken. I think it was in Portland when he was still with the blazers. Um, but uh, um, I've always had a kind of an affinity for Walton because he was an iconoclast when there were no such things in, you know, are very few of them in sports. And um, he really was an astonishing basketball player. And I know that younger listeners aren't going to really have any idea about Walton, except for the crazy guy on the National College Basketball telecast or Pac 12 telecasts. Um, but he was a very, very good player in his day. And I've always admired him. Um, and so, and I've encountered him in his. When he was with the Blazers, and the, well, actually, I even met him uh, when he was at UCLA, but uh, through his Blazer and Celtics career. And then um, when, he came, when uh, he came up as a Pac 12 broadcaster to do a Huskies game several years ago, and it was pregame, there were, you know, players were just out on the floor, there wasn't that much crowd. And I was on one side of the court, and he was on the other, and he yelled out, Art Teal. T-h-i-e-l. <laughs> he's, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised that he would remember that because he's, he can, you know, he can um, dictate the set list of every grand, uh, uh, Grateful Dead concert that he's ever been at. And he does it on the air sometimes. But um, yeah, Bill Walton was, you know, one of the great iconic characters that i um, I've really enjoyed throughout his career and all of his various phases.
1: Outstanding. Uh, keeping with the theme of basketball, you covered the Sonics. You have a very, I'm sure you have many favorite moments, but can you share one favorite time covering the Sonics, perhaps? Well,
2: um, I was actually uh, a very young reporter when the Sonics won the title. And I was back in Washington, D.C. when they beat the Bullets. Um, that was my, I was kind of an amazing because I was working the desk at the Journal American and they said, Hey, would you like to go to cover the Sonics in the finals? I said, sure. And, and so I had a chance to um, go back there for the 79 for uh, finals. And I was also uh, a columnist at the PI when they played the Bulls in the 1996 finals. Um, but I think the, the highlight moment um it was back in 79 when they won the city's first major pro sports modern championship and 200,000 people showed up in downtown Seattle to celebrate. Um, it's sort of lost in the mists of time and certainly obscured by the Seahawks party in 2014 when 700,000 people showed up. But nevertheless for a young guy who was just breaking into the business to be a part of that celebration. It's been great. It was wonderful. And I'm still in touch today with some of the Sonics people who are still in town here, Uh, Jack Sigma, Fred Brown, Slick Watts, Bill Russell. They're still here um, from that early era. It was such a different time in professional sports, but um, certainly the Sonics winning that first title and the first for the first time in Seattle's major pro sports history was a very big deal.
1: That's awesome. What a great memory. Um, Continuing on with the Sonics, do you think they'll ever come back?
2: Well, yeah, I think they will. And certainly having the arena here. Um, The arena is, is I think, going to work, except my, my only hesitation is, um, Climate Pledge Arena, as, as wonderful as it is, it's still a very small footprint. Um, they, they double the size, but it's probably, I would guess, the smallest arena in the league still, or close to it. And besides the physical footprint, uh, which limits the locker room size downstairs and a lot of some of the, some of the other amenities, um, it's going to be hard to fit a forty-game regular season into the winter sports calendar, when the arena operators make more money from concerts than they do from pro sports leases. So, I think it can be doable because Tim Leiwicky wouldn't have gotten. And Tim Leiwicky is the uh, is the um, uh, uh, the brains behind Oakview group who built all this and I don't think he would have made an arena too small but my understanding is from talking to sources who are familiar with the dealings is that um, Laiwiki wants the ownership of the uh, NBA team to come from within the group that owns the Kraken Mm. David Bonderman and others um so that's going to be a big deal um as to who owns this team because an outside party is going to bring an nba team in here could bring an nba team in here and and they're going to get second priority on winter sports dates so that's not necessarily going to be a comfortable thing but if it's if the ownership of the Sonics emerges from the group owning the, um, the Kraken, then they're all part of the group. They all share in the revenues from the concerts and the other leases. So anyway, long story short, I think they're going to come back. I think it will probably be after 2025 when the new – uh contra- the television media contracts are renegotiated on the upward scale and the other pros- the other league the other teams in the league will be willing to cut in two more teams for the share of the pie not before 2025 but shortly thereafter
1: okay um moving on you and i have a mutual friend dan branley um, yes. we, we both seem to think that you're more of a fan for, for, of UW than Wazoo. Why is that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, tell Dan and your listeners that uh, it's been a long, long time since I've cared about an outcome of a game. I, that's what happens in journalism. You don't cheer for outcomes. You cheer for good stories. Yeah. And uh, whatever story is good, Is what I'm pulling for in a game, and also I'm pulling for no overtime, no extra innings, that sort of thing. (laughs) Surely a selfish interest. So, whatever team is leading three-two going into the bottom of the ninth, that's the team I'm cheering for. (laughs) So, um, but as far as uh, WSU and UW, um, the only thing I can say uh, about that is that I have to say Washington State sports has been a target-rich environment for sarcastic sports columnists for many years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, I've enjoyed the rivalry a lot. I've been to WSU many times. I was uh, over there for that uh, Apple Cup recently in the snow game, which was mm-hmm. um, really a lot of fun to write, and then to get home from. And I was, uh, I was in the car after that snow game, driving up from Pullman to the hotel in Spokane, 70 miles of hell, and yeah. it got snowy. And I, I fortunately didn't have to drive. My uh, young friend, Christian Capel, who's the UW reporter for The Athletic, hmm. was driving. And uh, about halfway through, I said, hey, Christian, if you want to switch, I'm happy to take the wheel. No, no, no I, I can do this. And I said, oh, okay, just let me know says, but I do want to know one thing. How do you recruit to this crap? <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> question. Yeah. So um, anyway, I've had a lot of fun with WSU, and uh, I've also had a lot of fun with UW. But uh, there's also been plenty of uh, tense moments. I was going to, since you mentioned uh, WSU and UW, I was going to share the one of. Them. One of the more odious moments in my uh, career came the after the after Don James announced his resignation in 1991 from um, Huskies football in protest of the sanctions that were levied by the Pac-12 Conference and the NCAA over his recruiting violations. Um, he did that 12 days before the beginning of the season, uh, forced them to promote his, his nearest assistant, Jim Lambright, and he, uh, James was indignant, furious, not that he didn't have some reason, but he quit on his team, and I said that was, he would never have uh, permitted that among his players, however noble the reason, you don't quit, and I wrote it was an act of cowardice, and boy, did I get some death threats. Oh,
1: wow. Wow
3: really yeah
2: Yeah. oh yeah it it was not the first time wasn't the last time but um wow yeah i um you know i you know i i basically cast scorn upon a sacred figure in the sports community and um i got pilloried for it by the adherents. um and um you know it was i to me you know i i was i was a little bit shaken but then I realized that most journalists who are honest and not chills for the teams wind up hearing from booster groups, especially around colleges. Yeah, And um, that experience was hardly unique to me, not even in this market. Uh, mm-hmm. Steve Kelly had similar, similar experience. I don't, I don't think it was on that particular issue, but uh, he's had death threats as well. So um, people do take their sports way too seriously sometimes so nothing's ever happened i've not uh i haven't uh, been jumped in the parking lot of course it does help that i'm six foot eight and 260 pounds so i i do not appear vulnerable to uh fans who sneak up behind me even in bars
3: <laughs> right on well, I'm, I'm glad yeah i'm glad nothing has happened i mean that's yeah. just, you know we take our sports seriously here uh in seattle sports union but we don't ever take it that Seriously. I mean, it's a game is a game. I mean, yeah. But right. I, I, you know, and I, and I think your point is valid about quitting on quitting on the team. Um, I think, you're I mean, I understand the,
2: uh, all these arguments, and we won't rehash something that old, but yeah. Uh,
3: but, uh, no, I, but I admire, but I admire you for writing that. I, I and I agree with mm-hmm. your point. I, it, it, I mean, it makes total sense to me. I, and I, it's not worthy of, of anyone screaming at you and, and uh and, and death threats just amazes me i'm sorry yeah.
2: well yeah it's um it's happened before and i and i try not to make a big deal of it well but since we're talking about fun stories like oh, this fun um, stories. okay <laughs> <laughs> um i had another episode uh sort of semi-involving law enforcement but one that brings me to uh a great smile when i tell it um it was back in when Barry Ackerley owned the Sonics and he was in the market to try to build uh, an arena on the north uh, lot of the old kingdom. He owned that property. Um, and he was soliciting revenue and, and, also trying to talk the County into, uh, into supporting this in the city as well. And, um, and it had, you know, I mean, he had some momentum, uh, but it didn't get very far. And uh, he finally got hostile with the local politicos. So I wrote a column one day in the PI and I said, uh, a deal had fallen through. And I said, because of Barry's history of uh, contention and litigation and uh, you know, just sort of a, an angry guy owning the sonics back then. I said that, um, I would rather sleep in a bed of broken light bulbs than make a deal with Barry Ackerle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's I got a um,
3: response out
2: of Abraham, I could see, yeah. <laughs> so it got a response out of Barry too, because that uh, that column happened to coincide, which I had no idea. Um, with the fact that his daughter was getting married that uh, weekend in Seattle and all the family was in town to read that. Oh, (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) And so they're going up, uncle Barry, what does this mean? (laughs) (laughs) And it also coincided with the uh, annual NBA draft, which was early June then. And, at that time the Sonics were, uh, run, I, I think Bob Whitsitt was in charge and, um, uh, the, the, the event was going to be at a hotel ballroom in downtown Seattle. I think it was maybe at the Western or something. And they were going to have a, a public event where people, you know, could have balloons and cookies and whatever. And, uh, and then announce the picks and then there would be a private portion where, um, the Sonics, uh, brass would meet with the media for interviews. And so there was a public private portion. And I got tipped by a cop who I knew who was around the team a lot. He said, "Um, Art, I want, I, you know, I shouldn't be telling you this, but just for your own benefit and probably my benefit too, because I don't want to have to do this. But Barry's ordered that if you step in from the public space to the private space I have to arrest you for trespassing <laughs> <laughs> oh my <laughs> so um, I said really yeah I says yeah just you know just so you know I said I can't believe that Sonics are going to allow this and I said well that's that's my orders you know he was being he was being hired as an off-duty security person yeah. Um, so anyway, I appreciated the tip. And I, so I, I went to my boss and I said, Hey, look, um, this is what I've been told. And, um, uh, my boss looked at me and smiles and I said, well, what do you want me to do about this? And he said, well, don't forget to take a toothbrush with you in case you have to spend 24 hours in jail. <laughs>
3: <laughs> when you say you're bailing me out <laughs> yeah, yeah. maybe <laughs> so anyway uh, um,
2: I went the next day to the draft knowing that this was possible but a couple of the Sonic staffers who knew what was up came up to me and said hey Art um, we'd like to avoid a scene here so how about anybody that you want <clears throat> To interview we'll bring them out to you just don't go in the private area and you know I said that's fine you know I, I wasn't interested in the headline or doing anything uh, about me so it worked out but as that tension moved on into the regular season Barry Ackerley revoked my season pre- press credentials mm. along with Seattle Times columnist Steve Kelly and David Stern intervened, and yeah, uh, it wasn't until uh, uh, well, what David Stern said was they pa- there was a they passed a rule saying that no member of the media who has been credentialed previously can be denied. Uh, access based on anything he or she has written. So, as it turns out, (laughs) there was, there are, it was in the NBA bylaws, a rule known as the Art Teal rule. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So, uh, Barry's one little vengeance bit was that uh, on the sea, on the, on the uh, night of the season opener, and this is still the middle 90s, he told uh, he said that Stern didn't have to tell him where to put me. So uh, the, the press seats reserved for Steve Kelly and Art Teal were at the top of the catwalk in the old Coliseum at the peak of the roof.
3: Oh geez, the nosebleeds of the nosebleeds. Yeah,
2: yeah, and uh, and I've never, i never been up there, but it, it's you know it was a it's a place where maintenance workers go up all the time, so it's mm-hmm. structurally sound and you know there's no danger. But if you've never been up there before, <laughs> it's uh, it's a, you know kind of a walk where you need the old adult depends. But uh, <laughs> I got up there. And, uh, and Steve and I were both looking at each other and, you know, uh, you could see the little WTF question mark bubbles above our heads <laughs> and, uh, and, but as we, as the game progressed, it was actually kind of cool because you're up there at the, at the pinnacle right above the, uh, uh, center jump and you get a completely different perspective of the game from up there. And, um, So I I was probably came down after the game and saw some Sonic officials and said, hey, that was so cool. Can we do that again? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, they apparently uh, uh, more cooler heads prevail in the Sonic's front office. And they finally said that was a one-time thing. You're back on the floor. Never mind. They uh, made their point. Yeah. You know, so (laughs) anyway... Fun uh, stories to tell about uh, the old days. that would not happen again, but uh, yeah. and I'm actually glad it wouldn't.
1: Um, you, you, you're an author. I know you've written at least two books. Um, the bestseller, Out of Left Field, back in, I believe, 2003. What inspired you yes. to write that one?
2: Yeah, that was a, a pinnacle moment in my career, is to mm-hmm. write that book because it was a, a regional bestseller. And um, I, I made a deal with a... Mariners, I said, uh, I'm going to write this as a journalist, not as a uh, as a columnist. So I'm going to leave my opinions out. But I want access to the people and the decision makers who pulled all of this together. This again, for listeners who don't know. Um, the Mariners had never made the playoffs until 1995, the longest team to a postseason uh, in North American Modern sports, and um, and then they were in there in the playoffs four times in seven years. And out of that success came Safeco Field, um, the new. And ballpark. then they
3: started the cycle all over again.
2: Yes, another twenty-year drought <laughs> right now. Yeah, there was that little window of, of uh, Lou Pinella there in ninety-five. Uh, Yeah, um, it was really a lot of fun. And it's been so long now that I have, I I tell some younger fans who weren't around for any of this that um, as intense and as exciting as the Seahawks were in their Apex Legion of Boom years, and, uh, you know, the crowd is really altogether remarkable. I said, it's even better civically emotionally psychically when a baseball team is fully engaged because it's daily Mm -hmm. and we experienced a little of that at the end of last season oh yeah The, the final three games at home were very cool you know people got jazzed about what was going on um you know, there's still a lot of cynicism, still a lot of skepticism. I understand that. And we're still dealing at that point with lingering COVID. But people said, the hell with that, and pulled off their masks and screamed, believe, you know, off of Ted Lasso's uh, uh, meme. And so um, I've often said that I think that 95 run to the playoffs was the most intense, ecstatic. Period in Seattle sports because you had these colorful personalities, you know, like Junior Griffey and, and, and uh, Jay Buhner and, and Randy Johnson and um, Alex Rodriguez, really quality apex players. And you had an incredibly noisy building in the kingdom that, for all its shortfalls and all its you know, lack of cosmetic beauty, was a hellhole for visiting teams when, uh, and it was even the, as loud as um, the football field gets these days, are used to. Um, it was even more intense with the kingdom when the Mariners were successful. And so I, I tell people wait for the day when the Mariners are in a real race, starting with labor day. Mm-hmm and they've got good players and credibility that september is going to be electric at the new ballpark you know maybe that'll happen this year you know uh it's not beyond the realm but that that period in 95 was like nothing i've experienced and um and was also i i have to mention this since you mentioned the book out of the field i go into great detail about what it was like at Yankee Stadium for that ALDS playoff series in 1995 when the Yankees went up two to nothing and the Mariners came back and won three straight to advance to the ALCS. Um, Lost in that recollection was the fact that the Yankees had not been to the playoffs in fourteen years prior to that series, and that was the the era of George Steinbrenner at his worst, tearing down teams, firing managers, you know, doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And so this was the Yankees' first shot in a decade and a half. So that crowd was primed like I've never seen it, and I describe in the book how intense it was. Uh, Woody Woodward, who used to work for the Yankees and was general manager at the time, got out of the uh, limo with other Mariners officials and he told them, just be ready. You're not going to believe this. And if anybody gets hurt, let me know. And (laughs) (laughs) they went out. The players were talking about this and I quote Junior and Buner talking about how rowdy and rude the fans were. They were throwing batteries. Mm-hmm. They were uh, throwing cups of urine. They were uh, chanting very irreverent stuff in the outfield. And they were throwing things at Buner and Griffey and chanting at them. And I I, I, I do have a uh, rules here on the uh, podcast about uh, profanity and i don't
1: know (laughs) right ahead
2: (laughs) (laughs) well okay they began chanting buna takes it up the ass Uh (laughs) (laughs) ass." Uh and i remember I, i couldn't quite make out the words but they Uh, Buhner told me later for the book what it was, Mm -hmm. but I remember a moment in the outfield looking out there when uh Buhner was in right, Griffey was in center, and they both had their gloves over their mouths, they were laughing so hard at the chanting. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and they got especially they got especially furious with Buhner because they were throwing coins at him. In between batters. And he was going around picking up the coins in the outfield <laughs> and sticking them into the folds of his glove. <laughs> and I said, What the hell were you picking up the coins for? And he said, I wanted change for the subway in case I had to run, run out of the riot in this place. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh. Yeah. yeah, it was, uh, it was really an intense period. And that was the first uh, um, two games were just like that wall to wall intensity. And of course the Mariners lost both and it looked like it was bad and, and uh, you know, and then they came back to win the last three. So that is, you know, in terms of a week of, of sustained intensity that was my apex moment in Seattle sports was following that series back in New York, Mm -hmm. coming to Seattle. And the, the the final touch was after game five, after the celebration on the field and after everybody was gone, I had somebody tell me who was on the edge of George Steinbrenner's entourage. Steinbrenner walked across the field by home plate on the way to his ride and he said to the group around him as he looked around at the kingdom he said this fucking building beat us oh, true <laughs> you know and so I, I i that anecdote i i salute the sports fans of seattle for that one for as denigrated as that building was and you know and it only lasted 24 years It served a high purpose in October of 95 and Seattle fans should be proud of that moment.
1: Absolutely. Why isn't Lou Piniella in the hall of fame as a manager?
2: You know, I, that's a good question. And I think that still could be done, you know, because they've got so many committees now that um, go through the, the the just misses and somehow get them in. I, I don't know why, obviously he won a world series and his story is his success in Seattle is just such a tremendous story, but I don't think a lot of the national writers fully appreciate what he did in 10 years here. Yeah. Um, I have to say that Lou Piniella, there are two figures that I stand at, that stand out to me in my career as larger than life, Lou Piniella and Marshawn Lynch.
3: Hmm.
2: And, um, I don't say that about anybody else, but there, there was a, there was a mystique, there was an aura about both of those guys that transcended their, you know, their their statistics and their numbers, and just made them very special people. And I think uh, anybody who had an opportunity to be around either guy for you know a sustained period would know what I'm talking about.
3: Just really, really special people. Yeah, so I was, I was sorry. Just uh, I was gonna say your last uh, article mm-hmm. there on on Sports Press Northwest. You, you refer you to a anecdote when Lou Pinello was packing up to leave Seattle after ten years, and he's packing up and he and he, you were the only uh, his visitor in the room. He was standing there in his underwear, and I'm curious, mm-hmm. how many interviews did he do in, in his underwear over the course? Was well, it just because you were his buddy and you'd, you'd known him for 10 years and it was like whatever? Or I would guess probably 150. <laughs> he just didn't care. It was just that was part of his mentality. His, his, yeah, his well, that's
2: what it, that was just a little aspect of what endeared Lou, <laughs> the media. You know, it, the fans couldn't quite see it, but um, <laughs> it was forever. Uh, you know, back in the day when you could just sort of walk into the manager's office. Um, and I did, and other reporters did, it wasn't anything special with me. Um, and Lou would be, had his long socks on with his feet crossed up on the desk. had the New York times crossword, had his reading glasses down on the tip of his nose and had one cigarette in his mouth and another in an ashtray. (laughs) And he's just, you know, casual as heck. And yeah, come on in, have a seat. You know, and uh, and we just, you know, just shoot the bull for five minutes or 45 minutes or whatever he had. You know, it was just um, it was a great experience because he was so um, he was so confident in himself. He was so, you know, I mean, this may sound strange because we've all known the tantrums where he's out of control. But that's a different thing. Lou understood the game the people, his role and human relationships in a way that I've rarely seen other managers. Um, but it's also, you know, it just, it just endears him to everybody who was around him. There was Jay Buhner and and Lou loved each other, but there was an episode I recount in the book out of left field where Buhner's in a hitting slump and Lou demotes him from cleanup to sixth, and Buner sees it posted in the clubhouse, and he goes into Lou's office to confront him. And <laughs> Lou, uh, um, he's got you know same thing crossword puzzle glasses down cigarettes underwear, and uh, Buner goes, Lou what the fuck? <laughs> and Lou looks up at him and goes, who the fuck are you to ask me? What the fuck? <laughs> and, and it deteriorated in there from, from that point into a shouting match. And, uh, people started rushing in and pulling him apart. But, uh, <laughs> it is just such a, it was such a treat to be around, um, a guy like Lou, whose intensity was so sincere, yet he never bore grudges. You know, you could always, I mean, if he as a manager yelled at a player, he was purposeful. Mm-hmm. And um, it was not not ever held against. You know, he, he always felt like, and he said this uh, in the book, he said, I want to push these guys as hard as I can in spring training and during the season. So they'll be ready for when the real pressure comes in the fall. So this was all part of a a plan. And he started it with his first um, spring training in 93, when the team was still in Tempe, when they were, um, uh, <laughs> he had just come in there and he knew that this team had had no history of success and he knew he had to do something to you know stir it up so um, on the way back from a bad loss um, he he tells the bus driver to pull the bus over on the freeway because there's kids in a pasture playing, wiffle ball out there and Lou gets up turns around and faces the bus in there he says if we play like we did today I'm taking these kids to the game and I'm making you walk your asses home from here (laughs) (laughs) and then uh a little later on in that spring was the famous episode where he um Walked into the clubhouse after another desultory loss, and he saw the, the typical spread, you know, sandwiches and uh, cold cuts, potato salad, whatever. And he tipped over all the tables. This is not a goddamn restaurant. This is not <laughs> club bed You're here to play ball, and you're not gonna eat until you do play ball. Mm-hmm. You know, and everybody's looking around at him like, You know, is this guy nuts? What's going on here? But Lou needed to establish himself as the most intense guy that they'll ever work for. Mm -hmm. And he wanted them to take him seriously as a manager, but he also wanted to know he had their best interests at heart, which is why he never held a grudge. Um, The, after a tear down and one, you know, one day a a player could come in and say, Hey, geez, Lou, I'm I'm sorry about what happened. No, no, forget it. Forget it. You know, (laughs) today's a new day. And that really went over uh, a lot of people, including uh, oddballs like Randy Johnson, you know, and, and, you know, Junior was obviously a character unto himself and not an easy guy to manage. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, But I think Junior and Lou had a tremendous amount of mutual respect and affection. And a lot of, I think, a lot of the Mariner's success was was due to Pinella's ability to extract the best out of uh, eccentric characters like Junior and Griffey and um, A-Rod. And basically keep them apart so they, their egos wouldn't tear each other apart and tear down Tear the club down so that's really one of the you know one of the hallmarks of his tenure here that probably goes underappreciated is that he did the best managerial job I've ever seen in dealing with provocative controversial players who had huge egos and he managed it very very well
3: Well, and he also did the, you mentioned, you know, the tantrums that all the fans saw. and Really what he was doing is advocating for his players against, you know, from a part of the umpires and, you know, taking first base home with him or whichever base. I forget which base it was Uh, (laughs) on occasions. Mike, my question to you is, uh, do you think we'll ever see a quarter, a, a, a manager quite like that again? We, we, in this league nowadays, we don't seem to be seeing that anymore. You know, that style is, Intentionally gone from a managerial standpoint.
2: Well, I think you know Dave Roberts with the Dodgers is a little bit on that order. You know, I mean, he's not Lou. Nobody's going to be Lou. I mean, that's yeah. Well, yeah. But I think um, well, one one of the things that drove Lou out of Seattle was that he couldn't get along with upper management, specifically Howard Lincoln, CEO, and that's where the the clash was, uh, and it always will be for a guy of as strong as strong willed as as Lou was, uh, he's going to be a difficult guy for whoever's above him to deal with. And that's why increasingly as the clubs have gotten more uh, expensive, payrolls have gotten higher, the money is more important. A lot of owners and general managers, hire guys, who are easier to manage. Won't rock uh, the boat. Yeah. You know, that'll go along with, uh, you know, the, the the whole agenda. You know, I mean, Lou got, had to deal with George Steinbrenner. He had to deal with Marge Schott when she was the owner of the Reds when he was there. And he had to deal with a very uptight corporate world of Nintendo uh, when he was manager here in Seattle. So, yeah, there's just a lot of um, a lot that goes into managing a baseball team because it's 162 games, and um, there just there's a lot more stressors I think on a baseball manager on a daily basis than there are in football and basketball. Although it's a real fine degree because it's crazy too. It's really crazy in, in basketball because the players run the run the show. So. Yep.
1: Can, can we blame Russell Wilson's wife for Russell Wilson not playing for the Seahawks anymore? You can do whatever you
3: like. <laughs> <laughs> it's a free country. Yeah.
1: Uh, what happened there? What's your opinion of what happened? You, so she, you think she's the
2: latter-day Yoko Ono? Mm-hmm.
1: Pretty much, yeah.
2: Puppet master? <laughs> um, well, I really, I think um, Carol and Wilson had been at odds for multiple years about offensive philosophy, not about personality, not about um, anything else. But um, Carroll believes in a run-pass balance, I think, as all Seahawks fans understand. But that's uh, what I think has happened is that Carroll hasn't fully appreciated how much the game has changed, even in the time since he's been here, towards – a pass first offense. And there are reasons for that that are independent of Carroll. The rules changes favoring offense have happened since Carroll became coach. The first year that Carroll was a coach, they also changed the rules about how how and where defenders can hit players. So quarterbacks got more protected. And then in college sports, the air raid style of passing offense took over because more teams found that they could be more competitive with a Mike Leach style offense than they would with a conventional run pass balance that dominated college sports for many years. And so, as those as, as those offensive linemen left spread offenses in college, they weren't as adept at run game blocking as they needed to be for the NFL success. So all of those changes have occurred since Pete has been Seahawks coach. The, the, the lines aren't as good. The rules are more um, offense friendly And the advent of analytics has also taught a a big lesson, which is that the data shows that if you want to make five yards on the ground in the NFL, all 11 players have to work and execute their assignments properly. If you want to make those same five yards identically in a passing game, not everybody has to do everything right. And as a consequence, there's plenty of data to show that the passing percentage, uh, the passing completion percentage over the last 10 years has gone up while the yards per catch have gone down. What that means is coaches are discovering that it's easier to get that five yards passing the ball than running the ball. Mm -hmm. Pete doesn't believe that. Russell yeah. does that's the story yeah Pete's a bit of a dinosaur in, in yeah. that regard well you know it's uh, and it's changed within his tenure here I mean there are antecedents further back but the rules change so much in the game and and the emphasis changed and the talent has changed to the point where it's um, you know there are, there are people who don't know any other kind of football other than what Mike Leach has done, for example, as the local example of an air raid offense. But that's proliferated throughout college, and now all of that is uh, a part of the NFL. And so other coaches have recognized that, and Pete is firmly in his formula. And now he's got a quarterback in Drew Locke that will do his bidding where Russell wouldn't.
1: True. Um, my last question is, uh, rest in peace to the professor who passed away recently. Did you, did you work closely with John Clayton over the years? I'm assuming you did. Um, and what, can you share real quick one favorite moment with him?
2: Well, <laughs> I didn't work together a lot with John. I was not, I didn't work at the Tacoma News Tribune when he was there and okay. we were, you know, just kind of an opposite. I did more than just football. So I I wasn't around him a lot, but (laughs) I do remember there was, um, you know, John is, as you've heard, it's always on the phone or always writing or always doing anything. Well, we were, he was at the tribune and I was at the PI and we covered a East coast game. I can't remember. I think it was Philadelphia. We flew 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 back Monday morning on the same plane. In fact, in the same role. And I got stuck in the middle seat and John had the aisle. But when I'm in a middle seat, I tend to spill over into the other seats. And, uh, it's not John's fault. It's not my fault. It's the airline's fault it really pissed me off. Um, but I was so, I, I crowded John so much that he couldn't even get his, uh, uh, uh table down. So couldn't set up his computer. And I finally, it was four hours lost to John. And I don't think he ever forgave me for oh, no. four hours. <laughs> I remember as, as we got up, he finally, we were getting out of our seats and getting bags and heading down the aisle. And, I, and John got on his phone and I could hear him like four people behind me say, yeah, God. I, I'm, I'm just so far behind. I had to sit next to Art Teal. I couldn't do a damn thing. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, John, relax, H- have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, John was a, a, just set a standard that I've never seen matched in terms of work ethic and intensity for the job. And he took a great identity from it. He, he was um, the guy that everybody went to and made a 20-year career. Um, Out of uh, a 20-year television career, out of it, and he certainly didn't fit the picture of your classic blow-dried, good-looking, you know, TV anchor. And I think that endeared him to the audience, and his affability in being willing to talk to everybody about everything um, at airports and restaurants, and you know, he became a celebrity, and especially after that wonderful TV ad. The sports where, center commercial, yeah, this, yeah, the promo commercial where he pulls the ponytail out yeah. and jumps on the bed. <laughs> hey, mom, I'm done with my segment. <laughs> that was one of the great television moments ever. And oh I think yeah, people uh, really got a kick out of that, and everybody at ESPN says that was the pinnacle commercial of that. Kind of uh, promotional device. So, anyway, uh, John was a good dude, and I, you know, I was as shocked and saddened as everybody was. And sorry to see that happen, uh, but he did leave quite a standard behind and a thousand anecdotes, and you just got one. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: Thank you very much, Art. Um, we're hitting the end of our show here. Uh, is there any projects that you're working on right now, Art, that you'd like to tell all our listeners about?
2: Well, I've got a couple things going. I'm not uh, talking about them too much. I'm still keeping my connection with, uh, KNKX FM, the NPR affiliate in Seattle, where I do weekly commentaries. Uh, I was doing them weekly. Now it's on occasion. I'm going to do a Mariners preview coming up, um, on April 7th ahead of their, uh, road opener. And, uh, I've been with that station for 15 years doing commentaries. They've been great to me. And I, uh, I, I, Counsel all sports fans to tune into that and also to give a shout to a great news station and also jazz and blues. If you care for those, KNKX does a wonderful job. I've got a couple of other projects that um, I'm still kicking around and I'm uh, be happy to share it with you on a future visit. If you'll have me you back, bet. you'll absolutely. have to come back to. Absolutely. <laughs> tell
0: us a little bit more about it. That'd be amazing. Um, I just want to go around the table here because because we always and on a positive note and just do a shout out. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and start with a fellow by the name of Keith Pankow. A quick shout out to his podcast, All That Might Be Edified. Uh, I helped him start it and it's going strong here in its sixth month and um, all, all great success to him. Uh, Brian, over to you.
1: I'm headed to Portland for the next four days with my family. We're celebrating my father's 80th birthday. So I just want to say happy 80th birthday to my father. I love you very much.
2: Awesome. Wow. Congratulations. That's a Thank great you. thing. Happy birthday, Papa Solak. Thank and you.
0: That over to you.
3: Uh, I will, I will have to give a, a shout out or, or a, prim, a promo. Uh, Everett Aquastock start next Friday of home opener for the weekend. Uh, we're going to be there with us, the three of us, at least for, uh, for uh, doing some tailgating and covering some games and getting, meeting some players for the first time. And, and uh, we're really looking forward to it. It's been a very long off season. Uh, get down there to see the see the Aqua Sox, see the future Mariners.
0: Now, now cool. high high single A. Aqua
3: oh, Sox. and oh yeah, now high single A full season. And <laughs> uh, apparently, we're going to have their uh, their media guy Mike McCulloch, who is also the manager for the uh, Everett Merchants, on the show next nice. week. Cool.
0: And uh, last word to you, Art.
2: Well, I'm gonna give a shout out to one of my all-time favorite uh, Seattle athletes who just got hired today. Bobby Wagner signed a five-year, $50 million contract with the Los Angeles Rams. I realize that's fingernails down the blackboard for Seattle Seahawks fans, but I'm speaking to about the man personally. Um, Bobby is one of the uh, most solid, bright, um confident and um forward-thinking players have ever been around and he deserves to be in the league as long as he wants and i'm hoping that he'll come back to seattle and be a permanent resident here because his contributions to the community um have been strong already and i'd like to see that continue a very good dude i'm very happy for his success Awesome. I
3: hope he gets a ring. Uh, not the rest of his team, but he, he can get a ring. Him specifically, yeah. yes. We'll make an
2: arrangement. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. I'd like to thank our special guest today, a very special guest, Art Teal. And on behalf of hosts today, Matt, the Damn Dirty Duck page, uh, and Brian, the Soulman Solak, my name is Abraham Deweese. Check us out on Seattle's, on Twitter at Seattle SeattleSportsU as well at www.seattlesportsunion.com and check out all our great podcasts here on the spotify here on itunes and all sorts of other places see you guys next time